Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we hear from a Ukrainian-Canadian woman in Saskatchewan about the specter of a Russian invasion and the mood back home. We find out why hamsters are at the centre of the latest COVID crackdown and controversy in Hong Kong. And we celebrate National Compliment Day, how to give praise and how to receive it. But first, how the death of four people, including a toddler on the Canada-US border in Manitoba last week, exposes a larger problem that Canada needs to tackle. Well, today, a 47-year-old Florida man at the wheel of a passenger van where two of those 11 were allegedly found by authorities appeared via video link in a Minnesota courtroom. Steve Shan charged with human smuggling, and he was released or ordered released from custody with a number of conditions today. Well, to sort this all out, with me now is Kelly Sundberg, Associate Professor in the Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University in Calgary, and a former Canadian Border Services Agency officer. Thanks for joining us, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I mean, what do you make of the court's decision? I read something you said this week where you found, you figured that he was probably, you know, low down in this whole scheme and probably wouldn't be so surprised. Yeah, I I have no doubt that uh, as this, this court uh, case progresses and as more information is collected from uh, the American authorities, um, we're going to discover that this is a, 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 a probably a fairly sustained, long-standing uh, criminal enterprise uh, involving human smuggling. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate um, that, yet again, we see um, the example of where the Americans are, are they're the ones that are really identifying and, and, and highlighting the challenges with uh, migration control and border security in Canada. Um, and uh, I, I hope that uh, the Canada Border Services Agency and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police um, and our government, of course, think about how we can more effectively manage, control and take enforcement actions inside our country with respect to immigration uh, matters and customs matters, uh, as well as at the por- uh, at port of entries and along the border. I mean, we have the largest, longest border, um, undefended border in the world. And it's incredibly porous. And the only real patrols that happen are on the American side. They're not happening on the Canadian side. And I think we need to do more. I mean, understandably, in this case, we believe that somehow they were dropped off on the Canadian side, but were quickly found on the American side. So that lends a lot of credence to what you're saying. What is the problem? Well, the Canada Border Services Agency was established in 2003 uh, in response to the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And, you know, our country did a a decent job establishing an agency to address um, border safety matters, our airports, our ports of entry, the land borders. Um, However, the RCMP has, for the history of our, our border... Uh, always controlled or, or uh, has been tasked with the patrolling or the, the monitoring of movements between the ports of entry. The RCMP, um, I mean, they've done some great work with Shiprider and some other programs, um, out, you know, when they're looking at maritime patrols. And when we did in the years shortly after 9-11, the RCMP was very active with the integrated border enforcement teams. But over the, the last 
you know, roughly decade, the investment in border security and migration control has seriously waned. And we still see two federal agencies assuming responsibility for border security. And that, that in itself is inefficient and where there's just not the capacity, the investment, and the equipping of officers of either the CBSA or RCMP for identifying border security issues. Um, I would suggest that the majority of, of researchers, uh, many of whom are, are the same as me, former uh, CBSA officers or former RCMP officers, um, they, uh, we, 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 we do meet and we talk about the importance of having the CBSA expanded to take over the responsibilities that the RCMP has with relation to border security and immigration enforcement and, uh, and, and developing, so CBSA developing a border patrol, but also expanding the uh, capacity of, of inland immigration enforcement, um, intelligence and investigations, as well as for customs. You know, because we're all. Obviously- no, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I guess no, we, no, because ahead. we are we are seeing a change here. I gather. I mean, what this incident, sad, this tragic incident, would suggest is that we are now seeing, uh, after a while, well, all we talked about was was people coming across the other way. We are now yeah. seeing, we believe, more people now using Canada to get into the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's. I don't actually don't think it's that new. I think this has been going on for quite some time. Um, it's just that we, we, when you don't have any enforcement or even officers, let alone in enforcement actions, but officers, our side of the border, our border is by and large, um, just wide open. And we don't hear about court cases. We don't hear about enforcement actions because there's literally no one on the Canadian side to take such actions. And when we think of our, uh, in, when there's the enforcement, the investigation, and the um, uh, intelligence operations, and the women and men who are working in CBSA to address this, there's not a lot of them, and the few that are working, they're working nonstop. Like, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, and it has been for a very long time. Um, you know, as we've mo- uh, modernized and, and, and computerized our, our airports, so, you know, you go through, it's very quick, I would suggest that there's now an opportunity for the government to reimagine or uh, rethink of how border security, what's important to Canadians. We want to maintain our international obligations uh, for, for accepting refugees. I think we do a great job. We want to attract foreign workers. We need them. We want to have foreign workers. We want to have international students. We really do. Immigration is so important to Canada. It's critical to our, our society and to our economy. But we can't forget that there still needs to be enforcement because there are some really unscrupulous people who exploit um, foreigners um, either to smuggle them into Canada or out of Canada or to, to um, have them engage in uh, forced labor and these sort of things in Canada. If we don't have the officers who are equipped, trained, um, and have enough of them to address these issues, unfortunately, we're going to have undetected, irregular migration across our massive border. And having two agencies working, you know, I mean, they, they, work, they work together, 
but it's there still would be more efficiency if there was the CBSA took over the entire operation of border security. And I just want to throw in something I always say, there's still no oversight body for the Canada Border Services Agency either. There is no independent public oversight body like we see in virtually every other law enforcement agency in this country. The CBSA still does not have one and they need one so that they can so that the public, so the media, so that we know what's happening and that it's not a tragedy like this that brings issues of border security migration to the forefront of discussion. Kelly Sundberg, thank you so much for your insight on this, especially given your experience with uh, Canada Border Services Agency. And uh, certainly this this whole tragedy has raised a lot of questions about who would have left someone out in the middle of the night on such a frigid night? Where were they going? Who was bringing them there? Had they done it before? And obviously, as you point out, how can we make sure it doesn't happen again? Thank you so much for your insight tonight. Thank you so much. Well, this past weekend brought no ease to tensions over Ukraine. NATO today saying it was putting forces on standby and reinforcing Eastern Europe with more warships. The U.S. announced it was moving out diplomatic personnel from its embassy in Kiev, while the Pentagon is putting some 8,500 troops on heightened alert over concerns of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, Russia has more than 100,000 troops amassed on its border with Ukraine. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby says no decision has been made on sending troops to Europe. No deployment orders have been sent. Uh, No missions have been assigned. This is really about getting folks ready to go in case they're needed. And here at home, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, today laid out several contingency plans or said several contingency plans are in place to protect Canadian diplomats in Ukraine and their families and says we will make a determination or this country will about potential evacuations based on the safety of the situation. We are extremely concerned uh, about uh, the Russian aggression and the uh, ongoing threat of further invasion into Ukraine. Uh, That is why we've worked with our diplomats, uh, our uh, military in place and around the world to ensure uh, that we're doing everything we can, whatever eventuality comes up. The Prime Minister was also asked about sending weapons and extending the Canadian training mission in Western Ukraine that's meant to expire in March, but he would only say that we can expect more announcements to come. And tonight, the Foreign Affairs Minister shared on social media that Canada is recommending you, have, quote, avoid non-essential travel to Ukraine due to ongoing Russian threats and military buildup in and around the country. If you are in Ukraine, it says you should evaluate if your presence is essential. Well, one person among many in this country keeping a very close watch on what continues to unfold in Ukraine is Irina Matsyuk. She moved to Saskatchewan from Ukraine more than a decade ago now, and she joins me on the line from from Saskatchewan this evening. Welcome to the show, Irina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good evening. It must have been. I mean, it's always tense. I know when these things start to unfold. What's it been like in the last uh, in the last week or so as you've watched the, all the rhetoric escalate? You know, it's uh, frightening um, and it's concerning. And at the same time, as some people choose to, you know, kind of dismiss the whole idea that the war is uh, a real thing and it's coming, that it's more, you know, a geopolitical game between, you know, two power struggles, so to say, between East and, you know, and the Western countries. So, um, but for us, you know, who have families back home, back home, back in Ukraine, um, I have very close family. I immigrated here to Canada myself uh, on my own. So I have, you know, my mother, my sister, aunts and uncles, cousins. Uh, my cousins had to go and serve on the front line. 
because of the ongoing conflict. So for, for us, it's very nerve-wracking. I'm sure. Where are they? My family is mostly in uh, western and northern Ukraine, um, Kiev, capital city. I have some family in eastern Ukraine, but again, northern parts. So not anyone who is immediately affected, but will be affected, you know, if it comes to one of the parts that they're projected, you know, that could be a point of impact. I think there's a lot of curiosity here and a lot of, certainly a lot of uh, interest in exactly what the mood is like. Uh, What are you hearing from your family back home? Um, Some people are really concerned in my family and among my friends uh, that have been talking too closely, you know, and often in the last week. Um, However, we have to remember that they, you know, after Crimea was annexed and uh, the ongoing war in Donbass, it's been almost eight years now. So people are kind of, you know, it's real bad to say, but used to live with this, you know, tension and bad news around. And so a lot of them are just, you know, choosing to kind of live their life on and, you know, plan for tomorrow, how they're going to pay bills and go to work and worry about politics after they watch the news and hope that this is all just the news, which, again, not all people share that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I was there for a, for quite a, for I was there a few times in 2014. I was in Mariupol. I remember watching people pack up and leave right. uh, as the as the front moved, and and just just that image that always stays with me is people leaving, people packing up and yeah. leaving, and and obviously how difficult that is to even contemplate um, for your family. Exactly, and you know, one of the other concerns me and some other people here, you know, in our community who have um, who are so called recent immigrants. So to say, you know, what we are worrying is what is going to happen and if Canada as a country will step up if the war, you know, if the escalation happens, if, you know, active um, combats and all of this starts uh, happening, what is going to happen to our families? Are we able to bring them somehow into some kind of visas? You know, are they able to find a safe place within Ukraine at the time? All these thoughts are just going through our heads, but... We don't know. That's, you know, the, the war, one of the worst things. We don't know. Yeah. And, and I, I believe you're an immigration consultant as well. So you would know. You would know how this, I suspect you'd know how this works. How it's, it's still just as difficult as always to, to try and get people, bring people to Canada? I would say um, so far until this point, Ukraine has not uh, been impacted as in, you know, either approval rate or refusal rate. It's what I would call business as usual. However, now there's more and more people who are thinking of potentially, you know, applying or going. And I know technically I've never had to be to deal with, you know, a crisis like that or to be involved in, like, you know, maybe in some cases people had to deal with, you know, crisis in Afghanistan, some other countries. So I don't have that practical experience, but I know how the immigration system works. I know how the um, embassies work and, you know, if embassy staff is evacuated and, how how people, Canadian, non-Canadians that have relatives in Canada are going to have access to consular services, for example. I'm speaking with Irina Matsyuk, who moved to Saskatchewan from Ukraine a little more than a decade ago. We're talking about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, she still has most of her family uh, back in back in Ukraine. We're just talking about the overall mood and um, and what people are looking out for, what the reaction has been to the ever escalating ret- rhetoric over a potential Russian invasion of the country uh, and NATO reaction to it. Um, I'm curious to know, Irina, now that you've been here for a while, what do you what do you make of the of the Ukrainian community in Canada and, and how and how it rallies behind? Uh, issues unfolding uh, in Eastern Europe or back home? 
Um, you know, the the Ukrainian Canadian community is very strong, and that one thing that, despite of maybe you know some of our differences, when situation like this happen, um, communities come together, and we sometimes can make some things happen. We had that a recent experience, you know, when the Revolution of Dignity happened in 2013-2014, and uh, then, you know, the war in eastern Ukraine and how much uh, money was raised and, you know, other help and also kind of lobbying our local political politicians and people involved just to make sure that, you know, Ukraine stays on the radar um, between the government offices and it's been talked about and some assistance is provided. So, I would say community as as a whole has been amazing, and um, I'm really greatly appreciative to be a part of it. We've been speaking with Irina Matsyuk uh, about the situation in Ukraine. Irina still has family uh, back there. She came to Canada more than a decade ago, settling down in Saskatchewan, and uh, has been watching very closely, like so many people in this country, uh, what's been unfolding in Ukraine over the past while. Just before we speak about about this meeting at this town hall, you're going to... I did want to ask you one question I forgot to ask you in the last, but just about your family back home. I understand your, your grandmother and your mother look at this a bit differently, and I was just curious as to what the differences are and why. Um, they, my mom is looking after my grandma, so they live in one house. And I was right. talking to my mom, and she's saying how my baba, we call it in Ukraine, and my grandma, being 87, you know, and a child of war, she still remembers, um, you know, some bad things that happened, though she was very young at the time. And so um, she tends to react to it more emotionally, and she's more stressed, she's much more concerned. And that's what I've heard from some other people, too, that, you know, the generation that is still of the, you know, ch- children of war, they, they are more concerned because they know, they remember, they know h- how bad it could be versus, you know, generation like my mom and younger, um, as I said, people just so stressed and tired uh, of big news and everything that has been happening the last few years, uh, ongoing war that they just, you know, tend to sometimes maybe dismiss it. I call it as maybe self-defense mechanism, but just trying to kind of like hope for the best and, um, you know, go with it. Yeah. For our listeners who who wouldn't know, uh, I mean, there has been fighting in Ukraine over the past since 2014, but a lot of it, I mean, all of it confined to a very small area in the east of the country. So if you lived in the capital of Kiev, for instance, you wouldn't have seen uh, that kind of uh, violence, at least not not recently. So yes, I imagine that'd be very stressful for for that other generation who remember all too well uh, what war can be like. Exactly, Um, exactly. You have a you have a big meeting coming up tomorrow. And I'm just curious about who it's with and how it came about. So we've uh, uh, obviously Ukrainian community was trying to you know have meetings, discussions, uh, reach out to politicians and governments and you know local, federal, and we have this meeting coming up tomorrow at uh, 7 p.m. Saskatchewan time uh, in Manitoba and then uh, 6 p.m. in Alberta with uh, it's a, a virtual town hall um, with Honorable Christa Freeland and Honorable Melanie Jolie um, about the situation in Ukraine. We'll have three representatives from each province, Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, to have like, you know, five, seven minutes to talk about um, the situation, how we feel it, and, you know, what we want to um, express and say on behalf of the you know, community here, and uh, it will follow by live uh, uh, Q&A, so anyone interested can register. Um, I believe it's a Zoom meeting, 
and uh, we'll be able to ask questions. So hopefully we'll have some clarification, maybe in some points, as you previously mentioned, we kind of do not know what Canada is planning because they are saying that, you know, we are thinking about it, we are talking about it, but I guess, you know, like we are maybe a little bit impatient to see a little bit more action and a little bit more of a, you know, decisive nature of uh, statements and also kind of, you know, ask questions that are of interest to to us um, as a community. Right. I mean, this is the deputy prime minister and the foreign affairs minister, so it doesn't get much higher up than that. That's uh, no, how did this no. opportunity? How did this opportunity? How did this opportunity come about for you? Um, well, the um, I am a volunteer in the community, so I used to, uh, to you know be on different boards um, and am kind of you know in different committees. So I was volunteered <laughs> to be a representative from uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, very take this role very seriously. And uh, but as I said, it's not about, you know, one person. Um, And I was trying to spread information around to make sure that people do register because questions may come up uh, in the process and anyone can ask questions. Hopefully we'll have enough time because, you know, those meetings sometimes run short. But um, hopefully we'll have some information and maybe a little bit of, again, reassurance that uh, our government remembers and, um, you know, how it was for for us. They know how it was for us um, in 2014 when we couldn't believe that the war was locking on our door. And now we actually, you know, it's a deja vu kind of moment because it's happening again. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it already to some extent, but what message will you be looking to convey tomorrow when you have the ears of both the Deputy Prime Minister and Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister on such a pressing and important issue? Again, we just want to reiterate um, how important it is for us, for the community, mentioned, you know, a few experiences. Um, we are very grateful, for example, that, um, you know, Prime Minister, when he was speaking about uh, this whole situation, he says a further invasion uh, by Russia, not an invasion, as some media was saying, being that Canada knows that, you know, like Russia was, Russian government was involved in the previous, you know, um, action. So, and also ask questions like um, what I mentioned, you know, how, what is going to happen if um, uh, the war does come a reality? And, uh, you know, is there going to be some kind of, is there a plan uh, in terms of humanitarian preventing and assisting with humanitarian crisis, um, you know, access to consular visa services? Um, does Canada believe in any diplomatic solution at this point? Or do we know that, you know, Things are evolving so fast that we may wake up tomorrow to something, you know, some kind of bad news. So hopefully we'll have a chance to hear some answers to these questions tomorrow. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, again, I imagine from where you sit, even just the way the rhetoric of all the conversation has changed over the past few weeks must have you wondering what's going on behind the scenes. What do people know? Exactly. Is it being talked about? A very stressful situation. Irina Matsyuk, thank you so much for your your insight on this. Thank you for the update. Uh, I wish you and your family all the very best and good luck tomorrow in conveying those messages to, to two of the highest officials in the land. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for keeping uh, Ukraine in the news. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, the pandemic has led to a number of stories you might not ever have imagined seeing. This is probably one of them. A week ago, the Hong Kong government demanded that pet shops and hamster owners turn over 
2,000 hamsters after traces of the virus had been found on 11 of them, all in a pet shop where a 23-year-old staff member had fallen ill. The hamsters were imported from the Netherlands in late December, so the government also banned further hamster imports and asked people to surrender any of the animals bought on or after December the 22nd. Well, this new wrinkle in Hong Kong's zero COVID strategy has led to quite the outcry from the public, including petitions and offers from some to hide or adopt any hamsters that have been abandoned or needed shelter. For more on this, Andy Lowe joins me now. He's with Save the Hamsters Hong Kong. Andy, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. I, I mean, this is, again, if, if you're not in Hong Kong, I'm sure even if you're in Hong Kong, this is, a, this is a strange headline to read. How did you become familiar with it? How did you first hear about it and why? I mean, the news first broke last week. Um, I saw it appear on my uh, news app uh, and I was kind of shocked and sort of angered by the news. Um, and as you said, we've been pursuing a COVID zero strategy here in Hong Kong. We managed to keep COVID zero out of the city for the past couple of months. Um, that is until last December, when we start getting clusters of Omicron out- outbreaks throughout Hong Kong. Um, and there was an outbreak in the Causeway Bay area, which is a very busy shopping area. Uh, and this is where this pet shop was located. Um, and it was found that some of the customers and also some of the workers in that pet shop had tested positive for COVID-19. Um, so the authorities also decided to test some of the animals in the store and that 11 of the hamsters were positive for COVID. Um, so in keeping in line with the zero COVID strategy, the authorities decided to, the only decision was to cull all the hamsters at this pet shop, as well as 2,000 other hamsters and other smaller animals across 34 pet stores in Hong Kong, which is very sad to see. I also understand that they asked people who had bought hamsters to hand them back in. Yes, that's right. Uh, so any hamster owners that have bought pets on or after December the 22nd, uh, which is when the last shipment of hamsters came into Hong Kong from the Netherlands, have been asked to surrender their hamsters for testing. Um, so if the animals test positive, the owners will have to undergo quarantine. And regardless of the test result, the hamster will sadly be put down, which is you know quite outrageous, I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the things with COVID zero policies, and we've seen them in other places, is that it seems like people will put up with certain things and then there's something that happens and people are like, well, wait a second. This one is, this is ridiculous. And I, I was wondering from where you, from you, your perspective, why do you think there was such an outcry over this one? Uh, when there are other examples of COVID zero policies uh, that maybe didn't receive the same kind of backlash? Yeah, I think uh, a couple of veterinary groups and some other scientists have come out and said that euthanizing hamsters is not necessary and also quite harsh because the animal to human transmission risk is quite low. Um, And they're also culling um, people's hamsters that they bought that might not even have COVID. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that these are people's pets, these are people's friends, parts of their family, uh, of members of their family, this has all made, you know, things a bit emotional and people have been very angry about it. Yeah, I noticed that just from looking through the articles, reading the petitions, finding you, of course. Um, how did you get involved? And, and why did you get involved? Uh, so my friend Lawrence and I, uh, we both love animals, and we were saddened by the hamster news. Uh, we're both also into technology as well. Uh, and we decided to start Save the Hamsters HK. There's a Facebook and an Instagram group. So the goal is to raise awareness about what's happened, get a discussion going. Uh, but most importantly, we want to turn a sad story into a positive story. Um, and right now, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are on the rise right now. So we want to create uh, a set of themed hamster non-fungible tokens. And all proceeds, except for the operational costs, will go towards an animal charity, an animal welfare charity. Um, so that's our aim, really, to turn a, a negative, story, negative story into a positive story. 
I also understand you're not alone. There's been all kinds of different activity on social media with people offering yeah. to sort of adopt, harbor, hide, um, you know, the hamsters, certainly the ones bought before December 22nd. How has that unfolded over the past week or so? Um, yeah, there have been several sort of um, animal groups that have gone, got involved and tried to get people to, um, uh, to uh, give the hamsters to them. So um, some people have actually reacted out of fear from this uh, hamster news, this hamster culling. So they've actually started to abandon pets across Hong Kong. So uh, the last news report I checked was that um, uh, 77 or so hamsters have been abandoned by people across Hong Kong. So instead of you know, allowing that to happen, a lot of you know, charity groups have gone out to the streets and knocked on people's doors that they know their own pets and asked them to like um, turn over their hamsters to them for adoption instead of abandoning, abandoning them on the streets. So people were literally sort of taking them out of their cages and putting them out on the street? Yeah, there have been some people. Um, I would say for the most part, people have kept their pets. There is actually no legal requirement uh, that you turn over your hamster to the Hong Kong government. The Hong Kong government can't do that. And there's, the message has been clear on that from many um, veterinary groups as well. Right. Andy Lowe is joining me now from Hong Kong. We're talking about uh, a recent announcement by health authorities in Hong Kong of a culling of hamsters some 2,000 after 11 of them were found to have traces of COVID in a pet store where one employee and I gather a customer had uh, tested positive for Omicron and certainly a reflection of a zero COVID strategy that Hong Kong has been employing uh, in the recent past to cope with Omicron. What happens now, Andy? What happens with the, I mean, I imagine most of the hamsters that they were looking for have probably been found, but what do you think happens now in the next few weeks? Does this continue? Uh, well, sadly, now the 2,000 or so hamsters and other animals have already been culled. Um, the government is still facing a lot of backlash from people, but there are several groups that are trying to raise awareness about this and, you know, trying, just like us, they're trying to turn a negative story into a positive one by raising money for animal welfare charities and so that people don't forget about what happened and, you know, there, are, there is something good, something good that happens out of this. I, I guess I'll leave you the last word. Uh, I mean, I saw one headline that, that caught my eye originally it sort of said that the hamster call sort of, sort of showed the absurdity sometimes of these rules it was that the general sensation there that there were that, that that because the obvious question is if there is a danger with hamsters then you know why not be safe better safe than sorry but i guess it was the way the rule was brought out that seemed that seemed to be a bit um just a bit on the irrational side yeah we did feel it was very irrational i mean as i said the the you know, the hamster to human transmission rate is, is quite low. Um, there's not been many, well, the animal to human transmission rate has been quite low. There's not been many cases of that. Um, yeah, and again, like people's, you know, family members, people's pets have been taken away from them. So people have been very angry about that. So it, it kind of is absurd that the lengths that the Hong Kong government is going uh, towards keeping to this zero COVID strategy. Well, I'm sure we're going to hear about this one when we look back at uh, all the things that happened during the pandemic. The hamster call of Hong Kong um, will probably be one of them. Andy, thank you, thank you so much for sharing the information with our listeners. I don't think many people or a lot of people had heard about this. So thank you so much for sharing uh, the information and good luck with turning turning what what is a bad story into, into something positive. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Thanks to you for having me. From Ask Us Beauty Magazine, the co-founder and editor-in-chief, Michelle Emick, joins me now. Welcome. Great to have you. I'm not just saying that. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> you know, my late grandma used to tell me that flattery would get me everywhere. I don't think it's true. Uh, but the art of the compliment is a bit trickier than that, isn't it? That's what you found out. It is. It's a, it's, it, it, there's a specific way to do it right. <laughs> <laughs> which which is all about what we're going to be talking about today. Um, 
I, I think one of the things that really struck me about about your writing and about how you presented this is just how powerful the compliment really is. It's hard to under, underestimate how powerful a compliment can be. Absolutely, 100%. You know, and I think even more nowadays, we're so we can be so hyper focused, and we miss out on seeing those, you know, seeing how we can make a positive impact with others. And, um, you know, psychology tells us that words make an impact. And, you know, we, we wanted to push out there, what if we use use our power for for the good, you know, it costs nothing, right? Not many things out there are free, but <laughs> this one is so um, and, it, and it's, I always call it the twofer, right? Because it, it makes somebody else feel good. And then you get all those, all that good feeling in return. One of the things that is always curious about the compliment, though, is that it, it actually really is a skill. It's very tough to deliver a heartfelt, honest sounding compliment and one that the person receiving it can take with comfort. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think some of the easy key takeaways are obviously, number one, you want it to be genuine. Um, we've all kind of experienced those other, you know, like we call it the backhanded compliment. Um, you know, I always use the example of someone saying like, oh, wow, you've lost weight. You look good. You know, boy, you were really getting big there. For <laughs> you know, people make things you're like, oh, okay, thanks a lot. Um, so, you know, it is, it is, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. That That's a big one. And then obviously you want to be genuine. Um, and if you're face-to-face, you know, making eye contact and really, you know, putting, putting the focus on a compliment that has some substance behind it. One of the things I found, and I, 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 is that it's, it's, you think these things sometimes about people in your life that you, that you admire or love or both obviously, but you don't say them. And I guess the important part, I mean, looking through what you'd written about this, I guess the important part is, is making sure to write those things down or at least remember them so you can share them. Uh, And they are genuine. Yeah, that's, that's part of the the 30 day challenge is we went, we went a step further. So part of the challenge is to, you know, for the 30 days is giving out an authentic and genuine compliment. Um, But also not only saying those words, but writing them down, because that can be really powerful as well. And so we, you know, that's what we're asking everyone to do. And um, we through the through the article had a chance to um, interview one of our team contributors, um, clinical psychologist, Dr. Beverly Pedrochi, and she kind of talked to me a little bit about attention training. And so there's actually some, (laughs) there's actually some, you know, some specifics behind, uh, uh, you know, the compliments and how we can um, make an, you know, make an impact and make a difference. I'm talking to Michelle Emick, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Ask Us Beauty Magazine. On today, National Compliment Day, there are two things you talked about in there that I wanted to look into in a little more detail. One was the interview you did, and two was the 30-day challenge. I'll start with the interview you did because you did find out more about sort of putting yourself in the right frame of mind to compliment somebody. You can't just sort of jump into it. You do have to be, you do have to kind of put some intentionality behind it. Yeah. So, you know, what we, attention training is actually a technique that's used in cognitive therapy and that what it's done is it's used to interrupt self-focus. And um, we work with Dr. Beverly Pedrochi, who is a clinical psychologist, as I mentioned, Um, she is on the team of Ask Us Beauty because we spend a lot of time with our magazine. um, It's it's beauty inside and out. So we spend a lot of time with self-care, self-awareness, self-love. These are big topics of discussion. People think beauty, they automatically think, you know, lipstick and, and, you know, hair products. Um, But there's a lot more that that goes into that. So um, she talks to us about um, the attention training. And so what that's doing essentially is practicing mindfulness and really paying attention to what's happening 
in the present moment. Um, you know, compliments are just one of the small actions you can take. But again, it, it's that one small action can make two people feel good. So. And, and in reading about it, it's, it's sort of paying attention. So you can, you compliment because you're paying attention to what's going on around you because you notice, you notice something, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to, you have to stop and pay attention. Again, that's what we talked about in the, in the article, we talked about being so inwardly focused and we all are during these times. I mean, my goodness, we've all been in lockdown for so long, <laughs> you know, we're, and it's like, what about me? So really we want to say, let's, let's get rid of some of that anxiety and worry and let's look at the beauty around us and find those, find those things that are special and, and genuine and sincere and let other people know. Yeah. I certainly found uh, after those, uh, that first initial stretch of sort of COVID lockdowns that being back in social situations, it's awkward. So you, you, have <laughs> to get, you have to kind of retrain yourself to, to say the things you want to say and you're kind of hesitant. So that's a, tell, you've launched something called a 30 day challenge. To, you've launched a 30 day compliment challenge to coincide with today. Tell me a bit, a bit, a bit more about, uh, about that and what the inspiration was. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the big point is, you know, is just a lot of times if you can, you know, spend 30 days doing something and it'll start to, you know, it'll start to become habit, but it's 30 days of, of, you know, giving a compliment to at least one person. You can start with the people, you know, um, those are usually easy finding something very heartfelt and meaningful um, and just acknowledge that, you know, it, it just makes someone feel good. It's super easy. And then once you've conquered that, move on to, you know, an, a, a stranger, you know, notice something, look around, open your eyes, let's see that, you know. Um, and then, there's, you know, there's some people out there that have trouble accepting a compliment. So for those people, you know, just focus on learning to smile, accept and say thank you. I don't know if you've ever, you know, somebody that as soon as somebody gives them a compliment, they respond with, you know, oh, no, I'm not that. Or, you know, they have another, it goes on. It's never just a thank you so much. So learn to accept that as well. So for 30 days, do it one time a day, takes a few minutes out of your day, find something special and unique that you have noticed and let somebody know. Um, and that, that can, you know, it can really brighten someone's day and it'll make you feel good as well. You posted a video alongside this challenge of, of uh, many women talking about the best compliment they had ever received. I found it very touching because it was amazing how many of them came from people close to them. Um, and, and I just, what did you see in that video? What did you hear from the women that you spoke to about the best compliment they had received, who it came from, what it was about? I think you hit the nail on the head, Ben. I mean, it's exactly that. These are, whether it was their daughter or their mother or their son or their husband. I mean, it just goes to show, you know, that again, words matter and just taking the time out. We get, again, so caught up. Did you pay the bill? Did you take out the, you know, did you clean up your room? Whatever the case is, you know, stopping and really noticing something. Wow. You know, you, I'm so proud of you or, you know, that you've done a great job. You really put a lot of attention to detail and it, it, it shows, I mean, whatever those words are, we remember them. And, th and that's the whole, the whole point, as I said, in the, in the article I wrote is, you know, we all know those. I bet if I asked you, you have one that some sticks out in your head. And so it does. And it's, a, and sometimes it's fun. It's something that someone is like, wow, it was from 10 or 15 years ago. I remember this compliment. So that's, those are powerful words. And we just, we want to pump out as much positivity as we can these days. Yeah. I, you know, this obviously I was going to, you knew I was going to ask you this, but, but tell me about sort of the, a compliment that really sticks out to you and why one that was given to you. 
I, I mean, yes, there, you know, I know this sounds obnoxious. There's so many. <laughs> no, that's good. That's well, good. No, I mean, I'm one of those people. I, I, people that know me know I, my father, I grew up with a father who was a coach. And so I always say I was indoctrinated with, you know, this positivity and kind of pushing forward. So I accept, I do accept compliments, but I think for me, you know, on a personal level, it is, um, you know, being a mother, being a great mother. So someone says you're a great mother. That means a lot. I think from a professional standpoint is um, I've, I've been told many times that I have a lot of personal integrity and that is um, something that means a lot to me because I moved up the ladder at a young age and um, you know, I saw a lot of things um, going around me and I, um, you know, made difficult choices career-wise and so forth, even just going into entrepreneurship. Um, but I always stayed true to who I was and my beliefs. And um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm try- I was trying to think of one when I- we started talking about this. And when I- it's always the one that you didn't think of yourself. Like it's one that you don't know about your- or you don't think about yourself that someone says. I-, I remember once having someone who I really respected say that, that, uh, that I asked very sensitive questions. And I never really thought of it that way. And this goes back a while. And, and again, I'm not, I don't want to toot my own horn. And sometimes I don't ask very sensitive questions, but this was a particularly, you know, particularly uh, the environment itself and the person giving who told me that it was very, very touching. So I'll always remember that one, but uh, yeah, it, it's amazing. A compliment really does go a very long way. It does. And how long ago did you get that compliment? Oh, I mean, uh, 10 years ago now. Eight, and you still, and yeah. see, and it, you still remember it and it yep. stuck with you. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said, if we can just take the time step out of our own heads, notice something that not the, not that you have nice shoes or your hair looks great. I mean, let me, those are fine, but really get down to something that you notice that you're like, wow, you know, Ben, you really, you know, you really, you, that stuck with you. And that is, and you know what, it sticks with you. And then you start to believe it and you always have that in there. And you're like, you know, I do that. (laughs) So, you know, it makes us a bit, it makes us better people. I think so. You don't want to get too carried away with it, right? But at, at one minute, it is, it, and also that the person takes the time to, to stop and, and let you know that it's always is always yeah, great. Absolutely. Well, well, not you know, not to to, to start the thirty day challenge right now, uh, Michelle. I will say that I think your thirty day challenge is a great idea. So that's uh, thank you so much. Well, yeah. I again, we anytime we can put positivity out there, and that's what we want to do. Um, we just. We want to get people in a habit of just not being so inwardly focused and look around at all the beauty that's there. There it is. Michelle Emick, Ask Us Beauty Magazine's co-founder and editor-in-chief. Thank you so much for uh, talking compliments with us today. Thanks so much, Ben.